Welcome to the Heart of a Friend. This is Andy Wygand, and thanks for joining me for part three on this journey through the Lord's Prayer. A Barna study in 2017 concluded that 79% of all Americans prayed within the last three months. Just a guess, but I bet it was higher in 2020. According to Barna, it's our most common spiritual practice. Here are the five things we pray about most. Family well-being, personal guidance, health, forgiveness, and giving thanks. That's not a bad list. In fact, the top five things on my list are about the same. But is there another way to pray? Maybe a better way? A way that takes us off this treadmill list of our top five concerns? I think so. I don't think the model prayer, which we call the Lord's Prayer, is the only way to pray, and I don't think Jesus meant it that way, but it does teach us another way to pray that's different. It's different than how we pray when left to our own instincts. You know, I I used to prefer to just wing it when I prayed. I'd pray extemporaneously, whatever came to mind. Written prayers have never been my thing. I don't come from a liturgical church background, so my bias was against prayers that are written down. But as I've matured in my faith, at least slightly, I've come to appreciate the value of carefully prepared prayers. They teach me to pray in ways I wouldn't naturally pray. And they also keep my mind focused. They provide a structure. That way, when I'm distracted, look, there's a squirrel, I can easily get back to where I was in my prayer. Think of the Lord's Prayer as a kind of trellis. A trellis provides a framework that supports growing plants. Without the trellis, the plant would never climb. It would grow along the ground in random directions. In a lot of ways, like many of my prayers, going in random directions and never getting off the ground. The trellis of the Lord's Prayer helps our prayer life to grow up and in the right direction. Ben Patterson, in his book, Deepening Your Conversation with God, tells the story about one rabbi and what he said to his congregation. Quote, Consider what Rabbi Abraham Heschel said to the members of his synagogue who complained that the words of the liturgy did not express what they felt. He told them that it was not that the liturgy should express what they feel, but that they should learn to feel what the liturgy expressed. Great thoughts put into great words, prayed over time, can train our hearts, end quote. They can be a trellis for our prayer life. The model of the Lord's Prayer trains our hearts to pray differently than we would if left to the gravity of our own instincts. It breaks us free from the treadmill list of our top five concerns. It helps us to develop new spiritual muscle memory. It trains us to feel what is most important in the heart of Jesus. It gives us what should be the very first prayer of our hearts. Not for family, not for guidance, not for wealth or forgiveness, but this. Hallowed be thy name. The very first petition of the Lord's Prayer. So what does it mean? Hallowed be thy name. You know, I hesitate to mess with the wording of the Lord's Prayer, but frankly, this particular phrasing is hard to understand for most of us. It's old-style English, and it needs some interpretation to be properly understood. So let's look at the meaning more closely. 
Hallowed is not a word we use very often. Its basic meaning is holy, but that's not a word we understand very well either. So what does it mean to treat something as holy? The biblical word for holy signifies something that's totally different from us. So different that it must be set apart and treated with the utmost care and respect. Carelessly treating something that's holy was dangerous. An example would be the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was a fancy box and the quintessential symbol of the presence of God among the people of Israel. It was holy. It achieved modern fame in the first Indiana Jones movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and we all know what happened to the guy that looked inside it. The Ark had to be kept in a specified space, carried in a very particular manner, and could never be even touched. Among those who suffered the consequences of their carelessness were the Philistines who captured the Ark. Their bodies were filled with tumors and rats infested and destroyed their lands. And then some men of Beth Shemesh in Israel looked into the Ark and 70 died as a result. At a later time, Uzzah, a Levite, placed his hand on the Ark and died on the spot. Note to self, don't be careless around things that are holy. So the model prayer teaches us to ask that God's name be treated very carefully, with the utmost respect, with reverence and honor. May it be revered, may it be honored, may God's name be the object of our highest esteem. The Common English Version translates it well. Help us to honor your name. But what's all the fuss about a name? Does this just mean don't swear using God's name? Does it mean that if you take an oath and use God's name, you'd better be telling the truth or keep your promise? This would be a very superficial understanding. Not that we should swear or lie or break promises, but it's just that this first petition means so much more. In the Bible, someone's name is often used to represent the whole person, their reputation, their character, their mission, some examples, Abraham, his name was changed by God from Abram to Abraham, which means father of many. This name change represented his new destiny. Peter, Jesus gave Simon this nickname because it means rock. His new name described what was to become his new identity and mission. Jesus, his name means savior and described his entire mission. And when Jesus taught us to pray in his name, he wasn't referring to the verbal ending many of us tack on to our prayers. In Jesus' name we pray. No, he simply meant that the content of our prayer should be consistent with his whole character and mission. The point is that names in the Bible are more than random labels identifying people. They have meaning, and God's name represents his entire character and purposes. So the model prayer teaches us to ask this. First, may supreme honor be given to your name, in other words, to you and all you represent. Not just his name, his label, but his character and his purposes should be honored above all other things. The first petition of the Lord's Prayer summons us to reverence, utmost respect for our Father in heaven. Our first priority in prayer, as in life, is not about us, our health, our jobs, our families, our decisions. 
It's about God, not our interests, but His. It's no accident that all the great prayers of the Bible make this their first priority. When Moses prayed, his first concern was for God's reputation. When David faced off with Goliath, his declared motive for taking on the giant was so that the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And when Elijah publicly called to God for fire from heaven to consume a sacrifice, he prayed, so that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God. Clearly, it was a passion for the honor of God's name, his reputation, that was foremost in the hearts of his greatest servants, to pray first and foremost that God's reputation in the world would be untarnished, that the highest honor be given to him and to him alone. Now, maybe you're thinking like I am. Isn't that self-centered of God? This sounds like a kind of narcissism. Well, in just a few moments, I'd like to address this very question with you. So we are being told to pray first before anything else. May supreme honor be given to you. The question is why? Why does God insist on our utmost respect? Why does he want first priority in our prayers and in our lives? Why all the calls to worship him in the Bible? Why is he so touchy about giving him honor and respect? Now this may be an awkward line of questioning and may make us a bit uncomfortable, but after all, nothing could be more unattractive to us in our own social circles than someone who insists on always being the center of attention. We're put off by that. As someone once said, he who's in love with himself will have no rivals. We find self-centered, egocentric behavior intolerable. We've lots of labels for this. Egotistic, vain, self-centered, conceited, narcissistic. None of them are flattering. So how do we escape our negative gut reaction that God is doing exactly what we despise when we observe other people doing the same? How do we escape the distasteful notion that God himself is a narcissist? Well, I found a great deal of help with this question from C.S. Lewis, who addressed it in his book, Reflections on the Psalms. In it, there's a short chapter entitled, A Word About Praising. I'll splice together some quotes from this chapter because he says it better than I ever could. While this may be a little challenging, I'll do my best to help you follow his reasoning. A fresh perspective on this whole issue will be well worth the effort. And now I'm quoting. I found a stumbling block in the demand so clamorously made by all religious people that we should praise God. Still more in the suggestion that God himself demanded it, a perpetual eulogy. A modern author talked of God's right to be praised. I still think right is a bad way of expressing it, but I now see what the author meant. Let's begin with inanimate objects. What do we mean when we say that a picture is admirable? That admiration is the correct or appropriate response to it? that if paid, admiration will not be thrown away, and that 
if we do not admire it, we shall be stupid, insensible, and great losers. We shall have missed something. In that way, many objects, both in nature and in art, may be said to deserve or demand admiration. And applied to God, he is that object to admire, which is simply to be awake, to have entered the real world. Not to appreciate him is to have lost the greatest experience, and in the end, to have lost all. The incomplete and crippled lives of those who are tone deaf have never been in love, have never known true friendship, never cared for a good book, never enjoyed the feel of the morning air on their cheeks, are faint images of it. End quote. So Lewis is saying that admiration and awe are the normal and correct responses of healthy people for things that are admirable and awesome. But this is not all. Quote, I did not see that it is in the process of being worshipped that God communicates his presence to men. For many people at many times, the beauty of the Lord is revealed chiefly while they worship him. It is God who gives and we who receive. The miserable idea that God should in any sense need our worship like a vain woman wanting compliments or a vain author presenting his new books is absurd. Even if such a deity could be conceived, he would hardly come to us, the lowest of rational creatures, to gratify his appetite. I don't want my dog to bark approval of my books. End quote. So he's saying that worship is actually not for God, but for us. In fact, we absorb something of the beauty and awesomeness of whatever we admire. And in this case, God himself. Quoting again, But the most obvious fact about praise of God or anything else escaped me. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, praise of weather, wines, food, actors, horses, colleges, children, flowers, mountains, I had not noticed how the humblest and the most balanced minds praised most, while the cranks, misfits, and malcontents praised least. Praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmist in telling everyone to praise God are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. My whole difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards the supremely valuable, what we delight to do, what indeed we can't help but do, about everything else we value. End quote. His argument here is simple, from the lesser to the greater. We're constantly praising so many aspects of life in our world and urging others to do so. So by what logic, then, do we deny validity to the writers of Scripture who urge us to worship that which is supremely 
valuable. One last quote. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. The worthier the object, the more intense this delight would be. If it were possible for a created soul fully to appreciate, to love, and delight in, the worthiest object of all, and simultaneously at every moment to give his delight perfect expression, then that soul would be in supreme beatitude. The Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. End quote. So our delight is incomplete until it is expressed. To delight and express that joy in what is absolute beauty and goodness is to be supremely happy. Well, back to the first petition of the Lord's Prayer. May supreme honor be given to you. This prayer that God be honored is not because God is an insecure narcissist needing constant affirmation from his creatures. That's absurd. Our adoration adds nothing to his majesty. On the contrary, his insistence that we glorify him is the opposite of self-centeredness. It's not for him at all. It's for us. In the end, all the commands to put God first, to give him supreme honor, are not symptoms of a narcissist, a vain, self-serving God. The opposite is true. God is eternally self-giving. He knows that our highest good, our most sublime joy, our supreme happiness will only be found in his presence. When we give supreme honor to him, there is reciprocity. He gives himself back to us. This prayer begins a feedback loop. I'll never forget visiting London once with my good friend Brad Thurston. We wandered into St. Paul's Cathedral, renowned for its acoustics. It was just our luck to be there as one of the choirs was rehearsing. The choir was arranged in two sections. They stood on opposite sides of the front, the chancel area, with the high vaulted ceiling above. One side began singing just one short line of a song and then stopped. Immediately, the other side answered with a line. The sound of the singing from the first side, of course, continued to echo upwards, and the sound of the singing from the other side, in its own echo, intermingled with the sound of the first. Well, this alternation of sides, singing and sounds echoing, continued for an amazing few minutes. The sounds blended, grew louder, and rose in a spellbinding crescendo of breathtaking harmonies. We were mesmerized. We could have sat there for hours listening. I share this because it may help us to visualize the dynamics of the feedback loop created when we give God supreme honor. 
Our adoration of God is like singing the first line in an antiphonal choir. When we sing, so to speak, we're giving ourselves to God. And then he responds by giving us more of himself. He sings, so to speak, back to us. As we experience this, we respond again with more honor and adoration. And this creates the feedback loop. And as our life blends more and more with the life of God and his life intermingles with ours, there's growing beauty and power. And unlike the choir at St. Paul's, this feedback loop is never meant to stop. The crescendo will continue and is destined to grow for all eternity. We are destined for more than what we've become indeed. So in the end, all the commands to put God first, to give him supreme honor, are not symptoms of a narcissist, a vain, self-serving God. Far from it. God is eternally self-giving, and he knows that our highest good, our most sublime joy, Our supreme happiness will only be found in his presence. When we give supreme honor to him, there is reciprocity. He gives himself back to us. It's a sublime and eternal feedback loop, elevating us to a quality of life unimaginable to us now. So how can we do more than just recite these words, may supreme honor be given to you? I'll be back in just a few moments to explore two of the practical implications of this question. So how can we do more than simply recite these words? May supreme honor be given to you. This is a prayer with at least two very important practical implications. First, This prayer summons us to worship God. He is indeed worthy of being supremely honored. He is worthy of our worship and adoration. The vision of heaven in the book of Revelation pulls back the curtain for us to see what's going on. Those with the clearest line of sight to the throne of God, even those with majestic, angelic superpowers, even those endowed with their own unimaginable glory can do nothing more day and night than to fall before the throne and proclaim, you are worthy, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. I don't know about you, but I want to be in sync with what's going on in heaven. This prayer summons us to do just that. Again, it's not that God needs our praise. The Grand Canyon or the sunset at the beach don't need us to admire them. We can't add anything to their beauty and majesty. They're not in any way diminished when we ignore them, but when we ignore them, we are diminished. We are the great losers. But every time when we stop and admire these awesome natural wonders, we are refreshed. We become a little better. A little of their beauty and goodness is absorbed by us, and we are incrementally changed. And so it is when we worship, we become incrementally better. We absorb a little bit of God's goodness and beauty. For me, it is often when I'm listening to worship music or singing in public worship that God seems to reveal himself to me. Like the antiphonal choir at St. Paul's, when we sing, God often sings back. So find time and space in your own life to worship, both privately and with others. This prayer summons us to do just that. 
May supreme honor be given to you. A second and equally important implication. This prayer summons us to be an authentic representative of the goodness of God. How can we pray, may supreme honor be given to you, and then live in a way that is dishonoring to him? What do other people see when they look at you and me? Is my life a good advertisement for the kingdom of God? Does my public identification as a Christian enhance or detract from the label I wear, the Christian brand? Am I an asset or a liability to Jesus and his cause? There's a place in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says this, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father who is in heaven. In other words, our life should be a credit to the reputation of God. But too often this does not happen. I once spoke with a person who used to work on the waitstaff at a Max and Irma's restaurant. Disillusioned, she shared that the most angry and demanding customers in her experience were those who came into the restaurant after church on Sundays. They were also the same customers who usually left the smallest tips. I was mortified, ashamed embarrassed and wounded by the fact that the reputation of God's people was consistently being spoiled by this kind of behavior. All hope that that waitress would begin to honor God herself was being sabotaged every Sunday at lunchtime. Mahatma Gandhi was once asked what might be the greatest obstacle to the advance of the gospel in India. His answer The greatest obstacle to the advance of the gospel in India is the church. Perhaps this is true not only in India, but everywhere else as well. Everything about our conduct is a reflection on the name that we wear. During her lifetime, she was always ranked near the top of the list of the most admired people in the world, Mother Teresa. She was an Albanian nun in the Roman Catholic Church who devoted her life to caring for the homeless and dying on the streets of Kolkata, India. I always loved the title of her short biography by Malcolm Muggeridge, Something Beautiful for God. What Mother Teresa did was beautiful in the eyes of God and also in the eyes of the world. Her life brought honor to the reputation of God and his people. I think that's what I'm trying to say here. Do something beautiful. Be someone beautiful for God. This is what will bring honor to him. That's our job. Live a life that is an authentic representation of the goodness of God. Live a life that's attractive, that's worthy of imitation. Something beautiful for God. Be part of the answer to this prayer. May supreme honor be given to you. This first petition of the Lord's Prayer calls us to worship God. It also calls us to be an authentic representation of his goodness to others. So a paraphrase of this prayer might go something like this. Our Father in heaven, may you be supremely honored. I now join with the angels in heaven and worship you. I also commit to live this day 
in a way that will be a beautiful advertisement for you and your kingdom. You know, there's nothing wrong with praying for family, health, guidance, and forgiveness, and we all continue to do that. But first, before all these things, Jesus says it's better to pray like this, hallowed be thy name. May supreme honor be given to you, because it's not about us, it's about God. It's not about our interests, but his. Our highest priority is not our reputation, but his. The brilliance of this first petition, however, is that it contains the seed of the answers to all our other prayers. In seeking his glory and honor, we find our own. Our God is no narcissist, far from it. But once he has his proper place in our lives, everything else for us will begin to fall into place. Family, health, finances, decisions, and so much more. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I hope you'll join me for episode four in this series. We'll take the next petition of the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is where we become part of the inner circle in heaven's war room, part of the command center for all strategic operations on the planet. We can become part of the team that's making a difference in the world. Highlights and notes are available at the end of this and every episode, and if you'd like to keep up with future podcast episodes, please consider subscribing. Remember, we are destined for more than what we've become. This is From the Heart of a Friend.